Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the AccuWeather Podcast. And it's hard to believe that uh, two weeks ago, Hurricane Florence came on shore. In some ways, it seems like just yesterday, but in other ways, oh my gosh, it seems because like a long Because it's still going on. They're I know. Still dealing with it. I know they still have flooding, and uh, we decided to catch up with Jonathan Petramala, who was on the ground there for the AccuWeather Network reporting, and then Reed Timmer also was there during the event. But, you know, there's still follow-up stories after this because people are still out of their homes. Right. And Reed also, as we talked about last week, helping out with the Cajun Navy, helping people evacuate, get to safety. So we're going to get his uh, take on that story as well coming up. Right. I love the way he gets embedded in a story and uh, just follows it through. No one does it better. No one does it better. So we will be talking to Reed and Jonathan. So stay with us. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather Podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller. Well, I'm joined on the phone now by Reed Timmer, our extreme meteorologist who was providing extensive storm coverage during Hurricane Florence. I'm on North Thompson Island and the winds are increasing dramatically here with northerly wind. As Hurricane Florence is slowing down, moving about five miles an hour, I'm only about three feet above sea level here, and we do expect as that eye gets a little bit closer, suddenly those winds are going to switch and rip out of the east, and that's when that storm surge is going to come up. It's going to come up and over the dune and then begin to inundate this entire area here. We're about to retreat off this island back toward the mainland because the storm surge it's just too dangerous out here on these barrier islands. Thanks for uh, talking to me today, Reed. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me um, about where you were positioned? Because we kind of want to go back, look at the storm again through your eyes. And where were you positioned and what was your experience when the storm arrived? Well, I initially flew into Greenville, South Carolina. I still had a bunch of gear left over there from Hurricanes Irma and Harvey at my mom's place. So I picked up all that survival gear. We got a bunch of gas tanks, enough gas to survive for even a few weeks potentially because we knew it was going to be a, a potentially significant, even catastrophic uh, a flooding disaster. So we picked up all kinds of non-perishables, food and water, and targeted Wilmington. Initially, we worked closely with the AccuWeather meteorologists, and they predicted the landfall well in advance. So we set up in advance in Wilmington and covered a lot of people that were boarding up their homes on Wrightsville Beach. And we had our probe as well out there. So we were looking for locations where we could deploy that and monitor the storm surge and measure wind speed. At that time, it was supposed to make landfall as a Category 4 or maybe even a Category 5 storm, but it could have even been a major hurricane when it came in, which would have even been worse if you can imagine the devastation from Florence being worse than it already was. When you got there, what was the mood with the residents like? Did it seem like people were taking it seriously? Because you never know in some of these communities. Yeah, people were definitely taking it very seriously. Uh, As we were approaching, we saw that classic long line of evacuees heading the other direction and um, on Riceville Beach in the Barrier Islands people were boarding up their homes you could tell they were sad because they almost thought for sure that their 
their, their homes are going to be completely destroyed, especially if they came in as a Category 4 storm. Uh, the highest elevations on many of those barrier islands are only just a few feet. So if it came in that strong, a storm surge of 10 to 15 feet there could have uh, easily been even more devastating. So talking to the people as they were boarding up was definitely a sad feeling because many of them had lived there their whole lives. And then uh, those places on the Outer Banks have such character as well. You know, it was very sad. And thankfully, it came in as a Category 1. And so many of those uh, homes and structures on the barrier island survived. But as we knew, this storm was really going to be the big impact was the, the devastating flooding and the river flooding, which is still continuing uh, this many days after landfall. Which is amazing because it was just kind of sitting there and just kind of throwing more water at these areas. Now, would you say that's the biggest way that Hurricane Florence set itself apart from some other storms that made this unique was how the rain was? Certainly, that's what set it apart from many of the other storms we chased. Usually the storms that impact the eastern Carolinas are getting picked up by a trough, so they're quickly ejecting off to the northeast. And uh, this was actually the location where I chased my first ever hurricane too back in 1999 it was hurricane floyd which dumped up to two feet of rain in eastern north carolina and i actually had to drop my political science class that year because i missed all my exams because we were trapped out there due to flooding wow well it seems like you still did okay in your uh life's work read regardless of dropping that (laughs) class so not that we want to have anybody do that but it seems like it worked out okay for you but that had been the biggest storm that they had dealt with in recent history up until this one, right? Yeah, that one. And also Hurricane Matthew flooded out many of these same locations. And I think that also led to the residents here in eastern North Carolina taking it very seriously. And they knew that even though the hurricane was coming in at Category 1 instead of the Category 4 storm, they knew that the flooding was really the big concern, especially for those inland locations. And these stalling out tropical cyclones, are there's nothing more dangerous than that. And it's kind of scary that they seem to be happening more often these last few years. And the closest example that I can remember was Harvey from last year, which uh, came to a screeching halt as it came ashore and then stalled out over Houston. And dumped that nearly 60 inches of rain in some locations in southeast Texas. And this storm certainly had that feel with constant tornado warnings and just absolutely devastating rainfall rates of four to five inches per hour, even with the warm rain processes out there and those feeder bands streaming into the stalled out tropical cyclone. And it certainly had that feel of just being completely overwhelmed by by the water coming down. Uh, We all saw videos of the rescues from the floodwaters. And I'm just... You always fascinate me, Reed, because you go out covering a storm, and next thing I know, you're in the midst of the story doing something. And that happened with this one um, when I was watching, you know, I work on the network. And when did your mission change from just covering the storm to actually rescuing people? Like, how did that happen? Well, in that case, to cover uh, Hurricane Florence, we decided to split our team in two. So we had one of our team members cover the eye wall down in Wilmington, North Carolina, and we knew there was going to be a devastating storm surge up in New Bern. Uh, so I, we drove all night to the north uh, to get up to the Deuce River there, uh, which had a storm surge as well as river flooding at the same time with a storm surge even approaching 15 feet. And we got there just before the sun came up. And anytime you're covering these storms embedded in those conditions and trying to relay those reports to the people outside and being embedded in the floodwaters and those winds, uh, it's always a fine line between being a storm chaser and then potentially helping out in the rescue effort because you often see people like the Cajun Navy or uh, locals that will volunteer their fishing boat or emergency managers saving lives out there as those conditions evolve. And in that case, when the sun came up, there were floodwaters everywhere as far as you could see. 
and the winds were still cranking as well because we were in that eastern feeder band with winds of 50 to 60 miles an hour and we came around a corner and then suddenly you see a, a fishing boat uh, come on in and it, they were loaded up with people they had just rescued from along the riverfront. Uh, several of them appeared to be uh, elderly and uh, I had just interviewed uh, one of the heads of the Cajun Navy during Tropical Storm Gordon a few weeks prior and coincidentally it, it happened to be the same guy and so he waved me in and next thing I know I'm up to my chest in the water uh, helping to pull an elderly man off the boat that had just been rescued and then we moved them into our rental car and transported them to the Red Cross and it was just a uh, uh, great to be a part of that rescue effort, but really all we did was clear out our rental car and transport them to the Red Cross. But the people of the Cajun Navy, with oftentimes boats that are pretty small, were battling the waves and the floodwaters and the winds gusting to 50 miles an hour to to save lives. So it was an incredible thing to witness when you see humans helping out other humans in need. You know, in the midst of tragedy, that's always the most inspirational thing to see. And tell me a little more about the organization, the Cajun Navy, because there's the Cajun Navy, but they have like more branches, basically, of their, it's like an entirely volunteer organization? Yes, it's uh, it's entirely volunteer. And uh, we became really familiar with them during Hurricane Harvey on a national scale, because so many people came in and were rescuing others from the roofs of their homes. Many of the people were even displaced from their homes themselves and still were it's so selfless to, to see them volunteer their time and still help out others. And uh, many of them are based uh, there in the Gulf Coast region, and they, they're united by a common goal, and that is to help people when these disasters fall. And I had heard they um, also have, like, the Cajun Army, and then they have, like, a commissary, like, different things like that where they even provide further relief beyond the rescues. Yeah, they do. There's all different kinds of branches that help out during the storm as well. And then after when many people are displaced from their homes, they don't have a home to go back to. So they work to also provide resources through charity. AccuWeather, we're also working closely with the Red Cross to help people rebuild after these storms. And there's nothing more devastating than a stalled out tropical cyclone like this. And like what we saw with Hurricane Harvey, because when you have floodwaters that are feet deep they just destroy so many locations and when you have rainfall that's unprecedented many locations that have never seen flooding before are completely flooded out and often uh, impacted by potentially deadly floods so it's a terrible thing to see and it makes us realize that you can't be too focused on the Saffir simpson scale when a hurricane comes in because these stalling out hurricanes can have much worse impacts whether they're a category one or even a Category 4 storm like Hurricane Harvey was when it came ashore. So, Reed, we saw a video of you ending up in a helicopter. How did that happen? Yeah, and one thing with these stalled-out tropical cyclones is they're difficult to chase on the ground because you're often trapped in locations by the river flooding and the flash flooding as well as the storm surge inundation. You have all three types of flooding that you have to, to worry about. And so one of the best and most effective ways to really analyze the damage in those conditions as they're evolving is from the air. And you can do that through drones and also through helicopter. Uh, Using a helicopter, you can cover a lot more ground because you're limited by the the drone batteries a lot of times and the flight times are more limited with drones. And um, I have a friend that's involved in disaster response uh, with uh, SRP24.com is their website. And they were down there uh, getting uh, helicopters to scope out the damage and see the extent of the flooding. And so uh, we were able to hop on a a ride with them. And uh, you can really see the scope of the flooding when you got into the air. When you're on the ground, you're really limited in just seeing the flooding in your immediate surroundings. And you may see vehicles submerged uh, in your immediate surroundings, but then you get up in the air and it's 
you see those same impacts for as far as the eye can see in several different river basins as well. And you saw the wind damage on the barrier islands with the floodwater still yet to drain out there. And it was uh, it really put the storm into perspective when we had the, the, the aerial view there. Right. The aerial view, I would think, is so much uh, because, I mean, like, I can only imagine what it would be like out there with not being able to get from one location to another location if it were not from air. And, and from a storm chaser perspective, you know, it's difficult to cover the storm, but it really makes you feel for the, the people that are getting impacted, too. So, you, you know, when you cover these mega floods like this, that there are just so many lives that are getting turned upside down if you know not completely disrupted by these floodwaters and so it's you know easy to say that it's difficult from a storm chaser perspective to cover them but absolutely devastating and heartbreaking for, for these people that are impacted directly by these floods. Speaking of that I mean every traumatic event has that one memory or that one image that will always stand out to the person involved and you being there and seeing it what will yours be? Well I think uh seeing those images of I-40, normally a, a busy interstate, just a complete lake up and down, and the aerial vantage points of the, all of those neighborhoods flooded out, you know, so it's not as much of the wind speed in the eye wall as you might see with a strong hurricane coming in, but it's kind of this low motion disaster, the river flooding afterward, and it's just, uh, it's, it's a very sad sad sight to see. There's there's nothing more you know heartbreaking to cover than a than widespread flooding like this. And you may have talked to some of the residents there about this, but different people will be like, well, why uh, were those people staying? And there's always a different reason for for why people stay behind when these storms strike. Many of the reasons are economic, and they just don't have the resources to make it happen. They may not have another place to go. And uh, I think it's important also that. Maybe they were completely aware of the accurate forecast, but there was just nothing that they could do. So that's why it's important to approach these from a empathetic viewpoint as well and kind of understand why people couldn't evacuate. And, you know, they, they still need help and they were rescued. And I understand that emergency managers and people like the Cajun Navy may be risking their lives to help people, but it's possible if they just had no other choice. Yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective and probably something going forward that would be a really good thing for us as a society to kind of look at because we'll say evacuate, but if maybe you're an older person, you're on a, a strict income, and then maybe don't have family that lives elsewhere and you can't afford hotels mm-hmm. elsewhere, you know, that's a really interesting point. And I think it's an important one to make because people do say that. And I think it's uh, an important point to make. Well, some great reporting out there, Reed. We really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about your experience. And uh, for folks at home, we want to tell them they can always catch you on the AccuWeather Network chasing these storms. So as you're heading off to your next adventure, stay safe out there. Thank you, guys. Well, before we get to our interview with Jonathan, uh, Andy, tell folks where they can find us. That's right. You can find the AccuWeather podcast anywhere you get your favorite shows, or you can just go to our brand spanking new website, AccuWeather.com slash podcast. Check it out. Well, I'm getting a chance now to catch up with Jonathan Petromala, and we had Jonathan on the ground when the storm came in, days following uh, Florence. And now, Jonathan, you're catching up with me today from Conway, correct? Yeah, Conway, South Carolina. And if you can believe it, they are still dealing with Florence here, the Florence flooding. Two weeks it's been going on. These people you feel for them. What a difficult situation for them because we're still waiting for the Waccamaw at the time that we're recording this to crest. What is the stage there on the river? 
Yeah, already we are above the historic high, so nobody alive has seen the river at the level where it is right now, and we are still about a foot or two away from where they're expecting it to go, so we're over 20 feet, and it crested two years ago during Hurricane Matthew at 17.9, so we're probably going to be four to five feet above the historic high set by Matthew, and, and so what's really heartbreaking and sad and tragic is that you have a lot of people who didn't flood, of course, during that historic high, and they thought they were safe, and they thought they were not in a flood zone, and now they're seeing water. That's been one of the um, interesting things, is people that have never really had to deal with something to this extent now uh, dealing with it. So can you tell me a little bit about your experiences there during the storm and following in your coverage? You know, it's, it's one of those two sides of the story. You had the storm coming in, and it went pretty much right where everybody expected it to a little bit north of here about 70 miles in um, Wilmington area the Wrightsville Beach North Carolina so this area Myrtle Beach it was fine in terms of wind and rain we were on the good side of the storm but the unfortunate thing was that all along the prediction was for these rivers to rise so you had people who were dealing with the preparations for the hurricane and then it gets knocked down to a to a category one and there's a little bit of a sigh of relief and then we're on the the bottom of the storm so there's really not the strong winds i think i recorded a gust in the 50s maybe a foot of rain during the storm but then people knew that in a week we're going to be where we are today which is this historic high river flooding you know i was thinking about it too uh because we were covering it you know on the network and how it slowed down it diminished in intensity which you think is a good thing, but then also the fact that it slowed down. So now you've got the extended rainfall and all that has to drain into that area. You know, the hard part is when you have a, a hurricane that, that weakens, per se, a lot of people, a lot of times they kind of let their guard down. So that was a big problem with the flash flooding in North Carolina. A lot of people got trapped. A lot of people were injured. Some people even killed in North Carolina because they let their guard down because they didn't expect the conditions that they that they got. And one thing that we try to do with the network and as a reporter, you try to remind people that Hurricane Harvey, for instance, the big problems came in Houston when Harvey was a tropical storm, not when it was a hurricane. So, uh, you know, I think that's something also the National Hurricane Center is trying to convince people that it's the water with the storm. It's not the winds that people really need to be prepared for and aware of. And, you know, that's what we're seeing here as well. Even a week after landfall, week and a half, I guess it would be right now. Now you're talking about historic river flooding, and this is going to be slowly creeping down the east coast of South Carolina for the next few days here. What was this like for you, Jonathan? Because, you know, I talked to uh, Reed Timmer a little bit earlier, and we were talking about people focusing on that category, that Saffir Simpson category, you know, three, four. What was it like for you? Because you're on the ground and you kind of see that sense of relief for people and knowing what you know from from being back and forth with all the meteorologists here at AccuWeather about the rain. So tell me what that was like for you. Yeah, you know, when I, I coined it, I called it a slow motion disaster. And I started calling it last weekend a slow motion disaster. I feel like I've repeated myself dozens of times because it's hard to for people especially to be patient, right? And this was a really a patient testing disaster because a lot of people waited till the last second to move. And I'm glad a lot of people did. There was a, the flash flooding caused some, some pretty severe flooding here, brought the river into the major flood stage just almost right away, right after the hurricane. But then it receded a little bit. But I think that flash flooding actually saved a little bit because people saw how high it got and then they started to listen to the warnings 
that, hey, this is going to be a historic high. And so then they started pulling up their moving trucks to their homes, packing up those moving trucks full of their furniture and their belongings and just getting it out because they knew that they weren't going to save a lot of their homes, but at least they could save what they could. So that hopefully will allow the move back in process to go more smoothly than maybe if they have to just left everything in there, like a flash flood event that you saw in North Carolina. Tell me about the mood like when you got there. You know, some some people stayed and, and different people have their reasons. Did you have a chance to maybe talk to anybody specifically that maybe would have had a story for you? I talked to quite a few people, and this is the third major flood here in four years. So they've been through this. If there's ever anybody in this country that's an old pro at flooding, it's these people. So, you know, they're exasperated. And I think a lot of people are frustrated, and they're kind of seeing the correlation between development and then the subsequent flooding that people are having. So flooding that maybe somebody has never seen before in their lifetime, longtime residents, all of a sudden are seeing flooding, and they're seeing flooding on a regular basis. And they're correlating the fact that there's a lot of new subdivisions in woods and wetland areas that weren't there years and years ago. Now Myrtle Beach area is obviously becoming more and more developed. People are kind of second-guessing, hey, maybe it's not good to have all of this development, all these strip malls, all these new subdivisions being built because – the water is going to come. Where is it? Where is it going to go? So people are exasperated by the fact that they're going through a flood once again. Uh, a lot of people are saying, "This is it. We're done. We're not going to be living here." Um, what are they going to do with their homes? That's going to be the next question. A lot of people are probably not going to go through the FEMA process, where FEMA pays, I believe, seventy percent or so of the cost of the house, and then then they have to tear down the house, and then it's just a lot. So I think a lot of a lot of people are going to try and rent their homes, or they're going to try and move their businesses, and Uh, They're not going to go through this again, though, because they know it's going to happen again. So going forward, because you've covered, you know, a year after Harvey and after Maria Mm -hmm. and you see the long term challenges. And so you think it may change the face of that area over time permanently. Yeah. And especially in the near term, because you've got to imagine like the this is if this is kind of an interesting disaster in the fact that you have a lot of people who work in the service industry over in Myrtle Beach live over here. So a good example is solid waste division with the city of Myrtle Beach. That's about 14 miles to the east of where we are along the coast. Obviously, people know where Myrtle Beach is. Mm -hmm. Um, And 90 percent of the people who work with, you know, that picks up the trash and and handles that aspect of it. 90 percent of the workers, their homes are being flooded right now here in Conway. So the city of Myrtle Beach had to reach out to to their residents, say, hey, listen, sorry, we're not going to be able to collect as much trash right now. We have our workers, they needed to kind of take care of their their own homes right now. So you have that aspect of it. Then you have people who are, you know, working in the service industry around here as well. And, you know, what are they going to do? Because a lot of businesses are being flooded out right now. It's going to take months and months for those to get fixed and to move back in. So, you know, that right there is a, is a major impact in this economy, in this local area. I had asked Reed this question. I'm going to ask you the same question because I it's amazing how you walk away from something like this and then it sticks with you. So with every traumatic event, the people that kind of go through it have that one memory or that one image that will always stand out to them. So what would yours be? I think in this tragedy is going to be just the subdivisions covered up to the roof of the house of water. Uh, you know, that's that's always going to stick with me because it's it's not just one neighborhood or one town. You're talking about two states worth. Wow. And that is pretty incredible show of, of nature. I mean, it's even more incredible to me than even Harvey, just in that aspect of 
just looking at the the drone videos that we have and the helicopter shots that we have and seeing the neighborhood after neighborhood, state after state, town after town covered in water. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk with me today. I know you're back in Conway and and what uh, specifically are you uh, planning on covering or checking out while you're there? Yeah, we are um, obviously here for the crest that's going to happen. The water is super high. It's a lot higher than it was on Friday when I was last year. I had to go home for a couple of days, and now I'm back. My dog needed me for a day or two. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. But I am back, and it's, you know, I want to make sure I'm here for these people because a lot of the folks around here are very frustrated. They, They feel like they're being ignored because all the attention was in North Carolina. All the attention was somewhere else. And there's fatigue. People in other parts of the country, and I have a good example of just going back to Florida where I live, people just kind of lump it all together and it's it's gone you know they it's tough to keep attention when the hurricane's been gone for a week and a half well people here are dealing with the hurricane today it's like the storm is here today and that's what they're dealing with they're going through this this slow motion uh, disaster right now and so um it's really just my mission to document this the best i can and, and to keep this in people's minds and hearts so hopefully the people here can have the support that they're going to need in the next you know, week, months, years and from now. Right. Well, you know what? I think your phrase, um, slow motion disaster, is a really good way uh, to express it. So uh, thanks for taking some time with me, Jonathan. Glad to. Thanks for having me. Always good to uh, get a behind the scenes look at some of these big storms with Jonathan and Reed. So we appreciate that. Of course, on the AccuWeather Network, you can find it on Verizon Fios as well as now on DirecTV. I know. So you can check them out there. And we'd like you to stay tuned now because we have Elliot Abrams with a historical look back at this week in weather. Late September and early October can bring a wide variety of weather. It could be quite tranquil, quite stormy, too. 1822, around this time, a hurricane killed 125 people in Georgetown, Georgia, and a massive hurricane smashed a tour near Hilton Head, South Carolina, late September 1893, killing 1 to 2,000 people. And a 1985 Hurricane Gloria passed over Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, brought a storm surge of 8 to 12 feet, then raced all the way into New England within one day and then into eastern Canada. Even one death is a terrible tragedy in a storm, but better predictions and preparations have generally lowered storm death tolls over the years. We're coming to the end of September. After this weekend's cool down, warmer weather is likely to spread from the Midwest to the Northeast next week. Could pass 80 degrees from Chicago to New York City. Chilly air will follow a few days later, but tropical storms and hurricanes can still threaten. Hurricane Hazel smashed ashore near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina in mid-October 1954. Sandy hit much farther north in late October, six years later. That storm even caused tremendous damage to trees because of heavy snow in West Virginia. We're reaching the high point of raking season next month. All the leaves from all the trees blending into a crinkly carpet. The cereal box crunchiness amplifying the sounds of footsteps. I'm AccuWeather Meteorologist Elliot Abrams. Thanks, Elliot. And tune in next week because we have Paul Pastelock and Joe Lundberg back in the house. And they talked to us before about the summer forecast. Well, now we're already at the winter forecast. That's right. The winter forecast. What to expect from this year with the long range guys. I like how you like well, long range. Nice. Thank nice. you. Thank nice. You. The long range guys. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in for that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. 